Let's pray. Our Father, we come now to open the word together and, and we want to hear from you through it. And so, Lord, may your spirit do his good work in us this morning. Help us, Father, to focus, to concentrate, to hear and receive what you have for us. And that through your word, your spirit might change us and move us ever closer to the image of your glorious Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, the last Sunday in the month of October is traditionally known as Reformation Sunday. Many, many churches remember and celebrate on that particular Sunday the realities that biblical Christianity once held fast in the encrustments of medieval Catholicism, was liberated, as it were, in the, and through the ministry of the Reformers. Traditionally, the Reformation is measured historically as beginning on October 31st, 1517, and ending formally in 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia, which brought an end to what is known as the Thirty Year War. But the question for us this morning as we just begin together is to think a little bit about what were the causes of this Reformation? What, a, what brought about this dramatic change really that swept across Europe and of which we are now the beneficiaries and heirs? What caused the Reformation? And there are many, many causes to be sure. A few that historians often point to are things like this. There was a growing sense of nationalism that was beginning to, to move across Europe. In other words, people began to think of themselves as, a, as Germans or French or Swiss or, or English. And so there was the beginning of the coalescing of the nations, which now we know as modern Europe. There was also a, a, a rising middle class, and with that rising middle class came a dissatisfaction with the wealth and the conduct of the clergy in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, the poor didn't like it. It didn't really much matter. And the rich, for the most part, were aligned with the church. It was the middle class that rose up and said, enough of this, enough of this. There was also culturally the Renaissance, and with the Renaissance came the recovery of the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew, and, and the beginning to study the, the great texts that were written in those languages, and ultimately it led to the ability to read the New Testament and to read the Old Testament in its original language, and this was important, providing an accelerant and a fuel to the Reformation. There was the Gutenberg Press in 1456 with the uh, ability to have a movable metal type which allowed for the rapid um, production, publishing, and distribution of written materials. And so pamphlets began to, to move across Europe and ideas began to spread. It was as significant as the Internet. 
for the free flow of information across the continent, the Gutenberg Press. There was the translation of the Bible out of the Vulgate, which when it was originally done, Vulgate means the common language, out of Latin, which was no longer spoken and had been lost for a thousand years. And it was now being translated into the common languages and tongues of the people. And so people were able to begin to read the Bible for themselves and not be reliant upon a priest to tell them what it said. But the cause that I want to focus on with you this morning as we begin is biblical preaching. For it was biblical preaching that was used by God to sort of spread the, the ideas of the Reformation and to, and to bring people face to face with God in a way that had not been available to them previously. Biblical preaching, the, the reading of the Word of God, the explaining of the Word of God, explaining the text, and then applying the text to people's lives. This, the Spirit of God, always uses His Word to accomplish great things. And who were these early preachers? Who were these early preachers? Well, the morning star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe, who lived from 1329 to 1384, and a group of men called the English Lollards, and the word Lollards means mumblers, who followed him for 150 years, preached outside of the established authority structures of the church itself. And these lay preachers traveling about preached from the scriptures in opposition to church hierarchy, to the doctrine of transubstantiation, to the clerical celibacy, and to the prayers for the dead. And as this preaching began to infect the people, people were again drawn to the Word of God. There was a Czechoslovakian by the name of John Huss who lived from 1372 to 1415, a professor at the University of Prague and a, and a pastor of a local church who himself had been deeply influenced by the writings of Wycliffe. And so he preached openly and forcefully against papal abuses and emphasized the, the role of the Bible in church authority rather than church councils or the rules of men. His preaching was so powerful and, and so contrary to the hierarchy of his day that the church ultimately burned him in July 6th of 1415. In Germany, there was, a, there was a monk by the name of Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546. Luther was ordained a priest in 1507, received his doctor of theology in 1512, and then taught Bible and theology at Wittenberg University. There he became the people's pastor of the Wittenberg Church in 1516. And on October 31st, 1517, Luther ignited a firestorm of controversy when all he was seeking to do was to stimulate some academic discussion in a debate over the doctrine of indulgences. And he wrote his 95 theses and, and nailed them to the door of the church at Wittenberg, which was the equivalent of the community bulletin board. And unbeknownst to Luther, unsought by Luther, those 95 theses were, were copied and republished and, and transmitted throughout the land and, and really throughout the continent. And it, it became the, the, the spark that ignited the Reformation. 
Luther himself became a tireless preacher and author of numerous works. And we could go on, but time will fail us if we speak of Calvin in his work in Geneva or Zwingli in his work there in Switzerland or, or John Knox in Scotland. But all of these men, all of these powerful reformers had one thing in common, and that is that they were all powerful preachers of the Word of God. Powerful preachers of the Word of God. And in light, I think, of the powerful influence of biblical preaching on the Reformation, I think it's appropriate this morning, here with my last Sunday with you, to remind you, to remind you of the characteristics of biblical preaching so that Foothill will continue to remain faithful to this essential part of ministry. If you're not there already, open your personal copy of the Word of God to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Our text this morning will be chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5, but I want to get a running start at it. I want to get a running start at it. So we will begin our reading this morning in chapter 3 and verse 1. 2 Timothy is, is Paul's last recorded correspondence written under divine inspiration, and it is written to his faithful ministry partner, Timothy. Timothy had been with Paul from, from a young age, having spent roughly 15 years together with Paul before this time in Paul's life, where Paul finds himself in a Roman jail cell. And he is writing to Timothy here with some final instructions and some reminders on, on how to carry on the work of the ministry. And Paul's instructions, they, they build throughout this letter in 2 Timothy here till they arrive at the what is his culminating uh, instruction to Timothy here in chapter 4 and, and verses 1 through 5. This is the pinnacle of Paul's instruction to this man, knowing that this is likely the last written correspondence that they will have. Let me read the text for you, beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days... Difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. But just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress. 
for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worth, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Here in chapter 4, and in these verses 1 through 5, I find three characteristics of biblical preaching that I'd like to look at with you this morning. Three characteristics of biblical preaching. The first is found here in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2, and it is this. Biblical preaching is a solemn duty. Biblical preaching is a solemn duty. I solemnly charge you, Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. In light of the defection, the spiritual defection that, that Paul here in chapter 3 has said is certain to come, and realizing that the only antidote to such things is the Word of God, all Scripture is inspired of God and profitable, realizing that reality, then, then Paul gives to Timothy his most serious charge, his most serious charge. This is not the first time that Paul has given Timothy a charge to do something that is critical to both the life and health of the church, but, but there's something different about this charge. The language here of this charge raises it to a, to a height and level of seriousness unlike anything else that we have that Paul has ever given to one of his ministry partners in writing. We find it here. Timothy 
has to recognize that the, that the duty that's being imposed on him is being imposed on him. Notice, Paul says, in the very presence of God and Christ Jesus. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus. In other words, they are witnesses to the obligation that Paul is placing upon this young man. And as Paul says this, I solemnly charge you here in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Notice how Paul refers to Christ here. He focuses on Jesus as both the judge and coming king. Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Paul calls to Timothy's mind these, these realities about Jesus Christ. He is the judge, and he is the coming king. He is the judge. He is the one who is to judge the living and the dead. Now, we don't often talk about Jesus that way. We talk about Jesus as our Savior, and he is our Savior. Amen and amen. But he is also our judge. He is also our judge. And that idea appears in numerous places throughout the New Testament. In fact, that concept appears in the New Testament, and even this kind of language to judge the living and the dead appears several times in the New Testament, such that many commentators believe that actually it would became part of a baptismal confession for new converts, that they would, they would publicly express the reality that Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. We find in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42, Paul speaking to Cornelius. He says, and, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. It was part of Peter's gospel message to the, to the, to the Gentiles represented there in Cornelius. Jesus himself in John chapter 5 and verse 22 he says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Again, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 5, he writes, but they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And Paul himself in Romans chapter 14 and verse 9, for to this end Christ Jesus died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So we see this concept repeated throughout the New Testament that Jesus Christ is judge of the living and the dead. And this phrase here, the, the living and the dead, it's, it's, it's meant to just be a simple, all-inclusive kind of phrase. There, there really are only two kinds of people in the world, right? There are the living and there are the, that's it. You're one or the other, and hopefully this morning you're one of the former, <laughs> right? So Jesus is your judge. In other words, nobody escapes the judgment of Jesus Christ on their life. Not even death is a refuge. You can't hide from him your whole life and, and, and hope that the grave will continue to shield you. He is the judge of the living and the dead. When we think about the judgment of Christ, a question I think that comes to mind is when? When will this judgment Come when, when is it that Christ actually judges? And the judgment throughout the, again, throughout the scriptures, the judgment of Messiah, the judgment of Christ, the judgment of the king, it, it, it comes, it begins with the return of that king, the return of the king. 
Beloved, the most quoted or alluded to passage, of Old Testament passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110 in verse 1. It is repeatedly either quoted or alluded to numerous times in the New Testament. Where there the psalmist David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, the father says to the son, sit here and wait until the time is ripe, until the judgment is ready, until I crush your enemies before you and I will send you. And you will place your foot upon their necks. They will be in total submission to you. Paul here in, in um, 2 Timothy 4, the end of verse 1 here, where he talks about his appearing and his kingdom. This, this word appearing, epiphania, we get the English word epiphany, and it's used by Paul a number of times, six of them actually, in the New Testament. I'm not going to take the time to look at them with you, I'll just give them to you quickly, but 2 Timothy 1.10, it's used there, and it refers to the incarnation. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, it refers to Christ's coming and destruction of the Antichrist, the, the pretender to the throne. 1 Timothy 6.14, here, 2 Timothy 4.1, down to verse 8, and then Titus 2.13, it, it refers there to the return of Christ, to judge the world and to, and to establish his earthly kingdom. Now, in this topic of judgment, beloved, the Scriptures speak about four. Four distinct judgments, all associated with the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. And they are all conducted by Christ himself. Again, I will run through them quickly with you. We, through the years, we have taught on all of these more than one time. But here are these four judgments conducted by Christ and related in some way or another to his millennial kingdom, to his earthly reign. There is first the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. The Bema Seat. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for example. I will read that one for you. 2 Corinthians 5.10. There at the Bema Seat, it occurs after the rapture of the church, when all of the believers come before Christ and they are evaluated by him as to how they conducted their lives and their ministry. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there is the Bema Seat judgment of Christ upon the church. This is not a judgment unto salvation. Our, the, our sin has been dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. We, that the burden of our sin has been lifted from us, but we still are evaluated. We are judged by Christ as to what we do, with the steward, what kind of stewards we are with the gift of salvation that has been given to you and I, the Bema Seat. Secondly, there is the, the sheep and the goat judgment. The sheep and the goat judgment in Matthew 25. You can go ahead if you want and turn there or just listen. But in Matthew 25, we have the sheep and the goat judgment. This is the judgment of the Gentiles that occurs at the end of the tribulation and determines which Gentiles, which believing Gentiles, enter into Messiah's earthly kingdom in earthly, non-glorified bodies. The rapture of the church has already happened by this time. This is at the end of the tribulation. And so you and I, as children of the living God, the rapture takes us to be with Christ. 
We don't go through the seven years of tribulation, but at the end of that seven years, Christ returns and he conducts what's known here in chapter 25 as the sheep and goat judgment. Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And their character as either sheep or goat is revealed in how they ministered to the Jewish people during the horrors of the tribulation. Did they visit those in prison? Did they care for those who were naked and needed to be clothed and hungry and needed to be fed? Did they live out, even at risk of their own lives, the love of Christ to the Jewish people? Third, There is the judgment of the Jews at the end of the tribulation as to which of them will enter into Messiah's kingdom. And they pass under what's known as the shepherd's rod in in Ezekiel chapter 20, Ezekiel 20, and verses 33 and following. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt so that I will will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn but they will not enter the land of Israel thus you will know that I am the Lord. So at the end of the tribulation those uh, Jewish people who survived the horrors of that tribulation are gathered with Christ there outside of of, uh, the city of Jerusalem And he enters into judgment upon them. And those who have turned to Christ, those who have have voiced the words of Zechariah, that they have looked on him whom they have pierced, and they have mourned for him as one mourns for an only son, they demonstrate their true faith attachment to the Messiah. They who have taken to their lips Isaiah 53, they will enter into Messiah's kingdoms, and the other, the rebels, will be cast away. And then fourth and finally, there is the great white throne judgment spoken of in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. I'm not going to go there for that one. But there at the great white throne, at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom, Jesus Christ enters into judgment at the great white throne with all of the unbelievers. And no one survives that judgment. Not an unbeliever stands. And they are all assigned to the lake of fire. And then comes the eternal state. So back to young Timothy. Young Timothy, he has been called by Paul here to pastor the church of Jesus Christ. So the judgment, I believe that Paul is referring to here in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 4. All right, the one who is to judge the living and the dead. I think the judgment Paul is referring to here is the Bema Seat judgment. He is saying to Timothy that Christ... Pardon me, Christ will evaluate your ministry here, Timothy. He will evaluate your faithfulness to the charge that I am putting upon you. Paul brings together here all the weight of theology in order to impress upon Timothy the seriousness, 
the seriousness of the charge that he is about to get, give him. And what is that charge? Verse 2. What is it that Paul wants of Timothy above all else? You see it there. It is to preach the word. To preach the word. Keruso is the Greek verb. We get it from the noun keruks, which means to herald. It is, the, it is a herald. That is one who goes forth and makes public proclamation. To preach the word is to proclaim it out loud. It is to proclaim it publicly. It is to speak on behalf of the king. It is to preach the word, Timothy. Do not herald your personal opinions. Do not herald any philosophy that you might have learned or unlearned. You are to preach the word, that is the scriptures. And the reason you are to preach the word, you are to preach the scriptures, is because, verse 16 of chapter 3, it is only the scriptures that are theonoustos, it is only the scriptures that are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So Timothy, preach the word. No music. No puppets. No tips for successful Christian living, Timothy. What people need is a steady diet of the Word of God, for it is only the Word of God that the Spirit of God uses to transform, to save, and to sanctify the people of God. And so, Timothy, give them the Word. And give it to them as a man whose heart and mind have been taken captive by Christ, by the word of Christ yourself. You as a preacher, Timothy, you need to be, verse 2, be ready in season and out of season. In other words, preach the word, Timothy, all the time. In season, out of season. When it's convenient, when it's inconvenient. Preach the word Sunday after Sunday. They come what they must here is the Word of God. There are many, many other things, some of which are good, even helpful. But you must preach the Word to them. You must preach the Word. Now, when he speaks here about in season and out of season, I think from the preacher's point of view, what it means is, Timothy, you preach the Word whether you feel like it or you don't feel like it. Whether you're feeling healthy or you're feeling weak, whether, whether your mind is full of other things that are distracting, it doesn't matter, Timothy, you preach the word. Bring yourself under submission to it yourself first and then preach the word. But I think in, in light of the context here, that in season and out of season is probably really speaking to the congregation. And I see that in light of verse 3, right? For a time will come when they will not endure. In other words, the in-season and out-of-season is preach the word, Timothy, whether they want to hear it or they don't want to hear it. Whether they want you to preach to them or they don't want you to preach to them, you preach the word of God. You preach the word of God. And so that first characteristic of biblical preaching is it is a solemn, solemn duty. Secondly, biblical preaching confronts sin. Biblical preaching confronts sin. Look at the second half of verse 2. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. To reprove. The, the idea to reprove is to point out someone's sin as a violation of God's standard. 
In other words, to, to, to bring conviction, to, to convince them of their error or their fault. That is what biblical preaching does. It, it reproves people's sin. It reproves their sin. We, we see a vivid example of this over in Acts chapter 2, where Peter is speaking after the resurrection there on Pentecost, speaking to the Jewish people. Verse 22 of, of Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. But God has raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is, my friends, to rebuke someone. It is to rebuke someone. And the Spirit of God moves on those people. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? We have killed our king. And Peter said that in verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of, of the Holy Spirit. Biblical preaching confronts sin by reproving people's sin. Further, Paul says, to rebuke. Biblical preaching confronts sin by rebuking people's sin. In other words, to, to rebuke is to tell someone to stop doing what is wrong. To stop doing it. It is to, it is to reprimand someone. For example, over in Galatians chapter 2, we have an illustration of, of Paul doing that to Peter. Right? Paul rebukes Peter, Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. Well, pick it up in verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In other words, I rebuked him, verse 14. When I, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? And he goes on. Can you imagine that? You got two of the pillars of the church. And one of them turns to the other in front of everyone. And he says, you are wrong. And you're not just slightly wrong. You are gospel-denyingly wrong. That's a rebuke, huh? That's a rebuke. Third, over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says they are to exhort. He is to exhort, parakaleo. It's the idea to appeal to someone, to, to comfort someone, to help someone. I think here it carries the idea of, of, of urging truth upon someone, appealing to them to respond to it. I think about Genesis, a good illustration in Genesis chapter 4, for example, where God himself exhorts Cain, right, in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. 
where God says to Cain, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? In other words, why are you so down in the face, down in the mouth? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. This is a biblical exhortation. Listen, Cain, sin is about to overwhelm you. You must fight back. You must fight back. I appeal to you. I I bring you comfort. I bring you help. I, I show you a way out. This is to exhort. This is to exhort. And this exhortation, Paul says here in in 2 Timothy, right, is to be with great patience and instruction. With great patience and instruction. In other words, the preaching is to be direct. The preaching is to be uncompromising. But it is not to be angry. It is not to be overbearing. Remember, as a preacher, the sin is an offense against God, not against you. As the preacher, the sin is against God. We are... We stand behind the sacred desk. We are but sinners ourselves, saved by grace and completely dependent upon God. So our exhortations need to be marinated in patience and thoroughly blended with instruction. Because biblical preaching is a solemn duty. And biblical preaching confronts sin. And third and finally, biblical preaching can be unpopular. Biblical preaching can be unpopular. Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, verse 3, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Timothy, I'm laying this heavy duty charge upon you because the truth of the matter is there's going to be a time and it's coming when Christendom will have an increasing appetite for error rather than for truth. People will want to hear error rather than truth. And it is only a sturdy pastor who can hold up against such a foolish congregation. I want you to see here, beloved, that Paul lays the blame for the spiritual defection he's predicting for this church. By the way, Ephesus is this church. Ephesus is this church. And Paul lays the blame at the feet of the congregation, not the false teachers. He says, in your restless craving for novelty, they will follow a predictable pattern. They will no longer tolerate sound doctrine. The time will come when they will not endure sound or, or healthy doctrine. And this, this concept of, of sound doctrine or, or healthy doctrine, it, it appears all over the pastoral epistles. By this point in history, the, the apostolic instruction had for the most part become codified. Jude speaks to it in verse 3 of Jude's letter. The the, the teaching that has once and for all been been delivered to the saints. Doctrine has become codified. And so to depart from this truth is to invite spiritual disaster. 
to invite spiritual disaster. The problem is that some people, for some people, the, the truth is just not palatable anymore. The content and, and demands of the gospel are too hard. There are many, many places where people have rejected sound doctrine. The history of the Christian church is replete with it. There are great churches who are no longer great because they have turned aside from sound doctrine. But, beloved, we need to understand that no matter what the rejection is, at its root, it involves an assault upon the sovereignty of God and the integrity of his word. It imitates that original sin back there in the garden where Satan said to Eve, has God said? Has God said? A time coming where they will not long, any longer tolerate sound doctrine. Instead, they will heap up teachers to suit their new desires. All right, Seeking those that agree with them, those that, that speak what they want to hear. Churches pack the pulpits with people that, that tell them just what they want to hear. Why? Why do churches do that? Paul's answer is because they have itching ears. They have itching ears. In other words, there is a curiosity about the new and the novel. That which is fashionable, that which is intellectually respectable. The old gospel's not good enough anymore. They're bored, maybe even offended by the Scriptures. They want something or someone new to talk to them. Paul's saying the time is coming when churchgoers are going to follow their own perverted desires. They're going to turn away from the truth and they're going to gather to themselves teachers who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. And it has been the sad history of the Christian church through the decades, through the centuries, through the millennia that that has happened. As one writer said, and I think he says it well, when people want to worship a calf, they can always find a ministerial calf maker. When people want to worship a calf, they can always find a ministerial calf maker. They no longer tolerate sound doctrine. They, they heap up teachers to suit their new desires. Third, they reject the truth and embrace error. They turn away, verse 4, they turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Listen, when God's truth is rejected, the, the human mind events a substitute. Nature abhors a vacuum. And this verb, to, to turn aside here, it's a very strong word. It, it, it medically speaks about wrenching a limb out of joint. Very strong word. And I think Paul is intentioning a contrast here, right? By not enduring healthy or sound doctrine, people are wrenched out of joint spiritually. And they seek to fill the void with various myths and fables. Many, many, many years before that, Jeremiah the prophet spoke to the nation Israel in Jeremiah, 5, Jeremiah chapter 5 and verses 30, 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. 
They love it so. Faced with this kind of response, what's a preacher to do, huh? What is a preacher to do? Notice Paul's answer in verse 5. But you, Timothy, but you, Timothy, even if this is the situation you find yourself in, you be sober in all things. You endure hardship. You do the work of an evangelist. You fulfill your ministry. You be preaching the word in season and out of season. Timothy. Beloved, I am fully, fully confident in the Lord that Michael Lug is that kind of preacher. That Michael Lug is that kind of preacher. He will preach the word. I am further and fully confident that you, as the people of God here at Foothill, have developed such a taste for the word of God, such a passion to know what does the Bible say and how do I obey what it says that I am fully confident in the Lord that you will not turn aside, that you will not give up the truth for foolish doctrines and fables of men, for the, for the latest intellectual fad, so that you can be respectable in academia or among your coworkers or anything else, that you will continue to cling to the simple truths of the Word of God. I am fully convinced and therefore, Carol and I, with all our hearts, can commend you, commend you and commit you into the hands of our good God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Goodbye, beloved. We love you very much.